you've been on that vacation before. You know the where you have the, uh, the perfect day planned. You, you think this is going to be one of those times when everything's going to go just exactly right and you'll, you'll have these wonderful memories that you'll cherish for the rest of your lives. And uh, over spring break, my family and I were on vacation in San Antonio. We had one of those perfect days uh, planned. We decided, uh, because my wife Sherry loves SeaWorld, that we were going to go to SeaWorld uh, one day. My kids hadn't been there in many, many years. And so this was going to be a great time to watch... Shamu and, and all of the wonderful things at SeaWorld. Uh, evidently, though, the rest of Texas believed that this would also be the perfect day to uh, attend SeaWorld because we get in line, we pull off the right exit, and we get in line behind some cars, and we wait for over an hour before we get to those little ticket booths at the parking lot to pay for parking. Uh, and that hour uh, plus of creeping along towards the park provided us with ample opportunity to catch up on everything going on in our lives. And, and so we had some great conversation and it also afforded us the opportunity to sort of check out some of the things that were already happening in the park. Uh, you could see the roller coasters. There's a couple of roller coasters at this amusement park and, and you could check those out. You should know something about roller coasters in my family. There are some of us in my family, uh, myself included, who are just out on the whole roller coaster deal. I'm not getting on the things. I suppose it has something to do with being shaped like this and then trusting a high school student to zip lock you into the little cart and turn you upside down. That might be part of the story, but I'm just not doing it. I'm not getting on the roller coasters. I'm out. One of my kids follows me exactly. She, they're out. They're not getting on them. They're done. One of my kids just loves the things, and they cannot wait to get on the roller coaster. The faster, the better. The higher, the better. The whatever. They are all about the roller coasters, so they're excited as they watch these roller coasters zip by and the people already enjoying them. Another one of my kids is sort of in between. They, they are going to take in all the information they can, analyze it, and then decide whether the risk is worth the reward. You know, the, the reward is worth the risk. And so they're going to check it all out. And this is the conversation or debate that is occurring in our car as we wait to get into the park. One of the kids is just like, this is a terrible idea, and you should not ride this roller coaster. And they are laying out all the reasons this is a bad idea. You can, you can get sick on these roller coasters. People, you turn upside down, you go too fast, and you get sick, and they'll ruin your whole day at the park. You shouldn't ride this roller coaster. They said, I've seen video of people stalled on these roller coasters. You get in that ride, and you'll get stuck maybe upside down for hours and hours and hours. You'll be stuck in that roller coaster. It's a terrible idea. They go on further to say, you could possibly plummet to your death. No rock was overturned, un unturned, and, and telling about all the reasons you shouldn't ride these roller coasters. Meanwhile, another one of my kids is saying, man, this is the greatest thing ever. You have to ride this roller coaster. And besides, if you don't, I'll tell all your friends you are scared. Right? They're laying out all the virtues to riding these roller coasters. And eventually, these two roller coaster riders decide to ride these coasters. Maybe they look something like this.
So this week, as I'm looking for the little ha-ha about roller coasters, I'm, I'm investigating all these sites devoted to roller coasters. And they, they try to get you to click on their site by saying things like, these are the 10 most uh, scary roller coasters in the world. These are the 10 highest, tallest roller coasters in the world. Then directly following these sites are sites devoted to the perils of roller coasters that say things like, these are the 10 most devastating roller coaster accidents in history. Bad things really happen sometimes on these roller coasters, and whether you're dealing with something really terrible like getting stuck on them for hours or being injured or whatever, or even just dodging the bug artillery, right? Maybe one of my kids who approaches these roller coasters with trepidation isn't so wrong in having a response sprinkled with fear to these amusement park rides. It was early, one Sunday morning. See, they had to wait until the Sabbath was over. And they were in a hurry now. I'm not sure if they stopped at the 24-hour spice store or how it took place, but they had accumulated enough spices in order to prepare Jesus' body for burial. And they were on their way to do just that. They were on their way to, to visit the tomb and to, to uh, honor their, their friend and their teacher, their mentor, and the discussion that was taking place on the way wasn't so much about whether they had enough spices or whether they had invited the right people, but it was about the, the stone that was in front of the tomb. It was a large stone that would be rolled into place. In fact, it was so big that they'd often place the stone and then dig a, build, a, build a ramp for it to roll down in front of the entrance to the tomb. And so in order to remove the rock from in front of the grave, you'd not only have to deal with the actual weight of the stone, but with gravity itself and push the stone back up the hill in order to gain entrance into the tomb. And, and this group of women were discussing whether or not they would be able to do that. They realized that they didn't have any help coming, that they didn't have a plan for removing that tomb. But by the time their conversation sort of wrapped up with not knowing exactly how to handle that problem, they arrived at the grave and realized the conversation was for naught because the stone was already rolled away. And they hurried to investigate that open tomb a little more. And as they stepped in, I'm curious when fear gripped them for the first time. Was it when they realized that the stone had been moved was it when they stepped into the grave and their, their eyes sort of got used to the darkness and then they realized the body of Jesus, their friend, their teacher, wasn't there any longer? Was it when they heard a voice and they saw that this guy dressed in white and clothes that shone so bright it looked like lightning started to tell them, of all things, don't be afraid. And then he laid out how the Jesus, the person they were looking for, wasn't in the tomb any longer. And that they should go and tell Peter and John and the others. Well, these women, they, they took and they heard everything that angel said. And they, they surveyed the situation. And then they got out of there. And they hurried away more quickly than they hurried to the tomb in the first place. Gripped with fear. Literally shaking with fear. So scared that they were unable or unwilling, at least for a time, to tell anybody about what they'd seen. Can you imagine going to the grave of a loved one? You have flowers in hand. 
You're ready to decorate the grave. Make sure everything is just so, only to discover that not only is the grave just so, but it's been disturbed, that the body's missing. How would you react? What would your response to that empty grave be? I don't suppose that fear is such an unreasonable response for that group of women as they first discovered that Jesus' tomb was empty. Some of you are old enough to remember uh, family vacations and coming home from those family vacations and taking film to actually be developed. Kids, you used to have to take film that came out of cameras and it was a whole process. You had to take it somewhere and then in two or three weeks or whatever, you'd go and pick up your pictures. Soon it was 48 hours and that was amazing. And so you got your pictures back and sometimes you'd even have those pictures made into slides. And then you'd take those slides home and put them in the slide projector and you'd invite friends and family over and click, click, click. You'd watch the slideshow of the family vacation that you were just on. Maybe you have fond memories of those as a kid or you're a little more like me and you sort of sit back in dread thinking how long will even this memory of the slideshow be? Today we're so lucky, due to all the technology around us, we have instant access to everybody's slideshows all the time. Every major event in anybody's life, we have their slideshows, we just click and we see the slideshow, it's on their social media every time. We get slideshows of people's lunch every day. <laughs> it's this amazing, awesome world we live in. And there are all kinds of events in life that we ought to document and that we need to capture and that we need to remember. And there are some that are so big that I wonder why we want to document them in the first place. To me, I, I remember the birth of our first child and thinking, you know, I know people videotape that stuff and I just can't imagine. I mean, first of all, we, we, you tend, you know, after you, you, you have a baby, then you have kids and they're running around, they sort of remind you that that event took place. But secondly, it's just one of those things, it's hard to get it out of your memory, huh? I mean, it's so amazing, it's so awesome, it's so scary that it just sticks in your memory. And besides, I'm not sure who I'd invite to that premiere, like when are you going to watch it again, you know? I remember the birth of our first son and, uh, you know, holding that baby boy in your arms and however you look at it, right, minutes or days or hours before, I, he was alive and all those things. But I mean, you weren't touching him, you weren't seeing him, you weren't smelling him. And man, how scary that was. Here was this little human for whom you're totally responsible. There's not anything else in life that I think should scare you a little bit. And at the same time, as you reach out to your finger that seems like a giant finger and their little hands wrap around it, man, there's nothing more amazing than that. And there's nothing that brings you greater joy than that. How appropriate to the birth of a child is this response of fear mixed, perhaps even overwhelmed by joy. Mary and the other women arrived at the tomb, and on their way, they, they were having that conversation. And, and I suppose it, it went back and forth from a conversation about what they would do and how they might get into the tomb to periods of silence as they just walked along with each other knowing that they needed to be with each other and that they needed to do something. 
And then the ground literally began to shake. And as this earthquake took place, fear started to come over them. And they saw an angel roll the stone away and sit on top of the stone that had been in front of the tomb that held the body of Jesus. And then the angel said something remarkable. He said, do not be afraid. As if this is just your everyday earthquake and resurrection. It's okay. And he went on to tell them about uh, the fact that the tomb was empty, that Jesus wasn't there, that he was risen from the dead. This, this event, this earthquake, this startling appearance of an angel that so scared those women, so scared the professional guards stationed at the tomb that those guards shook and then passed out in fear. So moved by the explanation for that empty tomb that those women hurried off, gripped by fear, but mixed with joy, maybe even overwhelmed by joy, the hope that maybe, just maybe, the explanation of this guy sitting on a rock could be true, and that Jesus is alive. Every year my family has a tradition. Over the 4th of July, we go to my folks' house and we, we celebrate, I suppose, like any good Midwestern American celebrates the 4th of July. We have a cookout and then we blow things up. We, we light off fireworks. And it's not a celebration that's especially planned. Just people bring whatever fireworks they have and we kind of line them up and then, you know, people take turns taking them out to the appropriate place, lighting the wick, running away and watching the fireworks go off as ants and and uncles and cousins and grandmas and grandpas respond with the appropriate oohs and ahs. Americans love fireworks. Last 4th of July, we spent over $13 million on fireworks. We love fireworks because they're beautiful. Yes, because they're a little dangerous. And because they remind us of something bigger than ourselves. As you sit and you watch that celebration and the awe of something spectacular happening in the sky. You're, you're, not, you're reminded that there are so many who have sacrificed so much so that we can enjoy the freedoms, like sitting around eating hot dogs, watching fireworks explode. We're reminded of something bigger than ourselves. Those women were approaching the tomb in this last gospel account that we'll think about this morning. tells the story just like the others. Basically, like the others, they arrive at the tomb, it's empty. An angel comes and it starts to explain what, why the tomb is empty. And, and this angel, he asks this beautiful question that's recorded for us in Scripture. It's one of my favorite passages in Scripture. And he simply asks the women, why are you looking for the living among the dead? Jesus isn't here. He's risen. And, and the angel tells the women to go and find Peter and John and tell them that Jesus is going to meet them in Galilee and to head off to Galilee. And he goes on to describe everything that's happened and how Jesus had talked about this before. And just as beautiful as that question that the angel asks is just this simple mention in Scripture that says that the women started to remember what Jesus told them. 
They were struck by awe at the empty tomb, wondering what in the world could happen. And then, as the angel explained that empty tomb, and he started to talk about what the Old Testament said about Messiah and what Jesus had said about himself, they started to begin to put the pieces of the puzzle together, and they started to remember how Jesus had already talked about this. And they went looking for Peter and John, still amazed at the empty tomb, but beginning to remember what he had said. So many different responses to that empty tomb. So many different responses, sometimes by the very same people. Their, their emotions and their thoughts, well, they were sort of like a roller coaster too, weren't they? As they went with the ebb and flow of everything that they were dealing with, and as they sorted, started to sort it all out, they had to decide how they would respond to the empty tomb. Well, here's the deal today, folks. That tomb that was empty thousands of years ago is empty today. And just as surely as Mary and her friends and, and the friends of Jesus encountered that empty tomb and had to decide how will we respond to the empty tomb, when we encounter that same empty tomb, we have to decide how will we respond to that empty tomb. I think in John chapter 20, the first eight verses, the story of the empty tomb will teach us two steps to uh, maybe deciding how we will respond to the empty tomb this morning. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to open them up to uh, John chapter 20. You can probably find uh, the outline and the scripture references if you're using the YouVersion app on your phone or device. You can find, just search for Wallula there under events and you'll find... Uh, the scripture reference and the outline there as well. John chapter 20, just Matthew, Mark, Luke, John in the New Testament. Chapter 20, the first eight verses. Two steps to deciding how we'll respond to the empty tomb. This is what God's word says. John chapter 20, verses 1 through 8. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark... Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in. He saw and believed. Two steps that I think this section of Scripture teaches us about deciding how we'll respond to the, uh, the, the empty tomb. The first step, step number one, is to sort through the possible explanations. Sort through the possible explanations. Uh, it, it begins in verse 1 by saying, Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Now, when you work your way through the other accounts of the, of the empty tomb, of the resurrection and the gospel accounts, you'll realize that there 
there are some details that are different. And one of the details that stands out right away in, in verse 1 here is that in, in John, Mary Magdalene shows up or is at the empty tomb alone. In other accounts, she's with some friends. And that list varies as you go through the different uh, gospel accounts and the different four gospels. And, and for some folks, that might concern you about whether or not we can really trust the story. If they get these simple details wrong, then can we really trust the whole story? And I, I think just the opposite is actually true. Uh, when you're dealing with eyewitness accounts, even for something as simple as, say, a worship service on Sunday morning, you're going to leave and all you're going to be able to talk about all day is this worship service. Right? You're going to go and have ham with your family or whatever, and you're going to sit around, and, and somebody's going to say, man, I love the song that we sang to open the service, or it is well at the end, man, I can't get enough of that, or they had my favorite donut in the lobby, and I did, I'm so excited. And something's going to stand out to you about your experience here. And that something that stands out might be different from the person sitting next to you. That doesn't make either one of those experiences wrong. It just means that, hey, that's what stood out to us. That's what I want to talk about most. That's what I remember most. When you think about things that have happened in your shared lives with your family and friends, and you're talking about an event that happened 10 years ago or 5 years ago or 25 years ago, whatever it is, right? And you remember those things just differently. Different things stand out over that, that period of time. Well, that, that's true of any eyewitness account. And when you're dealing with eyewitnesses, one of the things you have to watch out for is when all the stories match up. Because sometimes that means, well, hey, everybody got their story straight. My kids are, Clayton's 16, he's driving now. Uh, he was coming home from youth group a couple weeks ago, and he was going too fast, and somebody with red and blue lights let him know that he was going too fast. <clears throat> and he received the speeding ticket. Look, here's the deal. We all mess up. I've received speeding tickets, right? Not such a big deal. The big deal in our family was that uh, we didn't find out about it for a couple days after the speeding ticket was issued. I'm not sure what the end game was. You know, he's, he's broke, so he wasn't taking care of this on his own. But anyway, we didn't find out about this. Now, you know, he's coming home from youth group. I told Zach, youth group's not working. You've got to do something different and all those things. And no, I'm just kidding. But the deal is, is that his sister was also in the car coming home from youth group. <laughs> right? So not only, not only did the boy fail to mention the speeding ticket, but he talked his sister into not saying anything either right? Great sister, bad advice. You know, when the story is straight, sometimes something's just a little fishy. And so I think the discrepancies, the things that we might look at in the story of the empty tomb and think, well, these things don't go together. They seem to be saying different things. Man, that, that actually ought to reassure us that we're dealing with eyewitness accounts and we can trust what's being said because nobody took the time, nobody thought when you're telling the truth, you don't have to get your story straight. And everybody wrote what was most important to them and what stood out in their story. Besides, the things like the stone being removed and the tomb being empty, those are the same in every one of those gospel accounts. So we can trust, I think, the, the gospels and we can trust the story that they tell. 
Verse 2 goes on to say, so she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, that's John, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. I suppose this is the most natural explanation for that empty tomb, isn't it? She right away blames it on somebody moved the body. What other explanation could there be? And she points to them. We don't know exactly who them is in Mary's mind, but I suppose they were the the Jewish leaders, religious leaders, or the Roman authorities, and she said they must have removed the body. If you turn back in the Gospels to Matthew, the 28th chapter, verses 11 through 15, you'll read the story about the, the guards who were stationed at the tomb and the guys who shook and then fell down in fear, passed out. When they woke up, they went to tell the guys they were employed by, hey, the tomb is empty. And those religious leaders said, this is what you need to say. This is our story and we're sticking to it. You tell everybody that the disciples stole the body. Now there's a couple of ideas here as this first explanation, or really the second explanation, I suppose. The angel provides the first explanation, right? Jesus is risen. He's not here because he's alive. He's left. And the second explanation that we ever hear is the most natural explanation. Somebody stole the body. Now, understand that if you're the, either the Jewish religious leaders or you're the Roman authorities and you've removed this body, that you've changed locations for whatever reason, and then this movement begins that becomes this huge thorn in your side to both of these areas of leadership, the movement that we call the church, becomes this huge thorn in the side of the Jewish religious leaders in the Roman authorities. And if they had moved the body, and if all they had to say was, no, look, you guys went to the wrong address. Jesus' body is over here. They would have done that. No scholars disagree that Jesus lived and died in this actual place, in this actual time in history. No legitimate scholars disagree with this fact. And so if if somebody could have stopped this movement that was so irritating to them simply by pointing somebody in the right direction to this right address, surely they would have done that. When you consider maybe the disciples moved the body, that they wanted to take better care of it, that they, they wanted to build this story that Jesus rose from the dead maybe even, well then they stole the body. Except that every one of these guys Every one of these guys lived a life of persecution and most died due to their belief that they had seen the risen Jesus. Nobody changed that story along the way. That's amazing because that's not how it happens. When people do something silly, when people make a mistake, when people mess up, if it will help them, man, they spill their guts and they come clean. Charles Colson is an author and evangelist. He, he uh, also worked in the Nixon White House and was arrested during the Watergate scandal. And he had this to say about Watergate and the resurrection. Watergate involved a conspiracy to cover up perpetrated by the closest aides to the president of the United States, the most powerful men in America who were intensely loyal to their president. But one of them, John Dean, turned state's evidence. In other words... He testified against Nixon, as he put it, to save his own skin. 
And he did so only two weeks after informing the president about what was really going on. Two weeks. The real cover-up, the lie, could only be held together for two weeks. And then everybody else jumped ship in order to save themselves. Now, the fact is that all of those around the president were facing, all they were facing was embarrassment and maybe prison. Nobody's life was at stake. But what about the disciples? Twelve powerless men, peasants really, were facing not just embarrassment or political disgrace, but beating, stonings, execution. Every single one of the disciples insisted to their dying breaths that they had physically seen Jesus' body, Jesus bodily raised from the dead. Don't you think that one of those apostles would have cracked before being beheaded or stoned? That one of them would have made a deal with the authorities? But none did. Every one of those guys uh, lived a life of persecution and death because they believed they had seen the risen Jesus. Surely, if they had just made up that story, if they knew where the body was, they would have come clean. Some people say that the, another explanation for that empty tomb is uh, Jesus never really died. That he, uh, he didn't die on the cross, that he, he, he passed out from the pain, and that uh, the coolness of the tomb resuscitated him that he came, came to in the tomb. Now, I want you to think about this just from a, a practical kind of thought process. First of all, you deal with the Roman guards responsible for the execution of Jesus. They were professional uh, executioners. They, were, they had killed hundreds, if not thousands, of folks on the cross. They were good at their job. They knew what to look for to make sure that their job was finished and that their victim really died. You read the accounts in the Gospels, like John chapter 19, verses 34 and 35, and you see that you know, they stabbed him in the side, and uh, his heart and the heart bled, uh, blood separated from water, that he was very much dead. You consider the excruciating beating that he endured prior to the execution on the cross, and it just doesn't make sense that they would have buried somebody alive. Furthermore, the, the, his disciples, the apostles, they stand behind this belief because they see Jesus risen from the dead. They start to preach right away that Jesus was alive, that he was raised from the dead. Can you imagine the process of a man beaten within the inch of his life, hung on a cross, stabbed in the side, wrapped with hundreds of pounds of spices and buried in a tomb only to undress himself, crawl to the stone covering the entranceway, push it aside and make your way to appear in an upper room to your friends in this what's described as glorious form. Not to mention having one of them stick their fingers in your holes in your hands and their fist in the side. Jesus died on the cross and he was buried in a grave. And perhaps as you weigh the evidence, the very best explanation for that empty tomb is that he raised from the dead. 
So step number one is to consider the possible explanations. Step number two is to make a personal decision, but not a solitary one. I should be smarter and write this better. What I mean is, is that it's a personal decision. We each have to make our own decision, but we don't have to make that decision alone. Look at verse uh, 3. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. They could not wait to investigate that empty tomb, the story that they heard, and they started on the way. In fact, verse 4 says both were running. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. This is a simple thing, but it reminds me that we're all on this journey to investigate not only that empty tomb, but the difference that Jesus makes in our life. If Jesus is who he claims he is, if the tomb's really empty, if, the, if Jesus raised from the dead, then that is the one thing that makes all the difference and everything else in all of history and eternity. And we're all on this journey to figure that out. Now, we're in different places, just like Peter and John. They start out, and they're running to investigate. And I love the imagery, because John, maybe a little younger, just flat faster, he outruns, outruns Peter to the entrance of the tomb, and he peers in, out of breath perhaps. But that's not what keeps him from entering the tomb. He just can't take that next step. He needs the support, the help, uh, the, the, he relies on the experience, the seniority of his friend, Peter. And he needs somebody else to help him take that next step into the tomb. Peter catches up. In verse 6, then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. When Peter arrives, that support, that strength mechanism of somebody else investigating with him helped John be able to walk into that empty tomb. As we investigate the empty tomb today, the same principle applies for us. It's our decision to make, and we are on this journey, but we're not on that journey alone. And we don't have to come to that decision. We don't have to investigate that decision alone. There are folks willing to help us along the way. Man, there's great opportunities for you to receive that help along the way here at Wallula. Maybe at the Closer Look class next Sunday. Even better is in one of the small groups that will be discussing these messages for the next several Sundays as we continue in this series, Resurrection. As we continue to discuss together, how do I respond to the empty tomb? How do I respond to the resurrection? What does my life look like now? We'll have the opportunity to share that and talk about that with other folks along that same journey. Some of them for sure ahead of us. Some of them maybe behind us. Maybe some of them are in very similar situations. But that conversation as we investigate Scripture together can only be the same kind of support and help that Peter provided to John. As they enter that tomb and they look around, verse 8 ends with John entering the tomb, seeing what Peter sees, and Scripture says simply, he saw and believed. John's the first person to see that empty tomb and to believe. He had enough evidence. Now, verse 9 is going to go on to say that they hadn't figured it all out. 
That as they think about what Jesus taught and they consider the Old Testament, that they hadn't put all the pieces together. But he didn't wait for all the pieces to fit perfectly. He had enough evidence in that moment to begin that journey to acknowledge that maybe the best explanation for an empty tomb is a raised Jesus. And he gave in. He believed. For sure this morning, as we weigh the evidence and we consider our response to that empty tomb, some of us may be ready. Some of us have gathered enough evidence. We've considered things long enough. We've heard enough voices. We've read the story enough that we're ready to give in, that we see, we hear, and now we believe. If you're ready for the first time to say yes to Jesus, that you want to find out, you want to find out what it means to follow after him, just mark becoming a Christian on that long white card. We're going to contact you this week. We're going to help you along that way. We're going to come just like Peter in support of John and entering into that tomb. We'll help you investigate that empty tomb together. We'll figure out what it means to follow after Jesus. You can begin that relationship right now. You know, I've got kids in high school now, and I'm realizing that some things are done differently than they used to. One of the things done differently than they used to be done is inviting somebody to prom. Have you seen these promposals that happen? I mean, they're pretty extravagant deals. I mean, you really have to be committed to this inviting somebody to prom these days. One of my kids, their friends, he was inviting this young lady to attend their prom, and he needed some help with his promposal. This young lady evidently plays volleyball, and so he purchased this volleyball, and he had a little poem. It said, you're aces if you'll say yes to prom, or whatever it is. It was very cute, right? Adorable. And he wanted somebody to write neatly on the volleyball. And so he comes to my house, and Clayton's like, I'm out. I don't know. I can't spell. And so, you know, they, they go to Lacey, and they ask Lacey, hey, will you write on this volleyball? So she writes out the little poem and the invitation to prom on the volleyball. And as they're hanging out, I'm asking this kid, so are you nervous? And he said, no, what do you mean? I said, well, she has to say yes. You know, you've made this investment, and now you have to ask her, and then she has to say yes. Have you thought this through? That's what has to happen. And he said, no, I mean, I visited her at her choir concert, and her mom thought I was going to invite her to prom then, so she had a camera and was ready. So she's basically said yes already. I said, yeah, except she hasn't. (laughs) You have to ask, and then there's a response to the question. And that response really matters, huh? Well, if a response matters in something look, in long-term, as silly as a prom, then for sure, our response to that empty tomb in relationship to all of eternity really, really matters. This morning, this morning, don't leave here without deciding or beginning the journey to decide at least how you will respond to that empty tomb. Let's stand and worship him together.